Amen. Thanks, Seth, Christiana, David, for focusing our hearts and minds on Christ through song this morning. Good morning and welcome to Trinity Church. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's going to be my privilege this morning to open God's Word and lead us in our study of the book of Colossians. So we will be this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Uh, If you did not get a listening guide on your way in, piece of paper that will have the sermon notes, uh, a space for sermon notes that will have an outline of the text, the text. If you did not get one of those, you can slip up your hand and Dave will make sure that you get one. Uh, As you turn to Colossians chapter 3, we have been working through this book since September looking at the gospel, at what God has done to save us from our sin, to invite us into his family, the church. Uh, And over the last few weeks, as we've gotten into chapter 3, we've begun to look at what are the implications of this transformation. What is this new life supposed to bring about in our lives? What are the things from our life that we need to to cast off, to put away? What are the new things that we need to put on as children of God, as brothers and sisters uh, in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to be training that thought, that, that idea of what, what do we do in response to the gospel with a laser-like focus on the family. We're going to be reimagining what the family is supposed to be, what God created family to be. Pastor Alistair Begg has put it this way. He said, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, your Christianity doesn't work. And that's absolutely true. If if we have been changed and transformed by the gospel and it leaves our most intimate and closely treasured relationships unaffected, then what good is it? If God has transformed us, that transformation should, should start from the inside out and it should radically change the way we relate to one another in the family. I would suggest to you this morning, there is no more foundational, crucial place for you to work out the details of your faith than within the walls of your own home. If you aren't practicing these things there, then it's it's all just a show for the outside world. At home, we're most relaxed. At home, we're most unguarded. At home, we're most comfortable. And so when that happens, when the eyes of the watching world fade away and it's just you and the people you're most familiar with, what kind of effect does your faith have on the way that you relate, on the way that you love, on the way that you interact with your family. And so Paul is going to offer to us this morning some specific exhortations, some specific commands to wives, to husbands, to parents, and to kids. Very simple, straightforward, easy to understand. And and like we talked about before when we were looking at the the sins we need to put away, this is not an exhaustive list. We're not going to hit everything that husbands and wives and parents and kids need to do. But like also, this is not a, a random list. Paul is getting at four truths, four principles that are foundationally important for us to be the wives, husbands, children, parents that God has called us to be. If we want to become like Jesus, we have got to master these things. And so this morning, are you married? Are you a parent? Are you a kid? If you are, then the application for you this morning is going to be immediate, and it's likely going to be hard. It's going to call you to die to self and to put those around you in your family and value them more highly than you value your own wants, your own desires. But maybe you're not married. Maybe you're not a parent. Maybe you're not a kid this morning and and you're thinking, well, I guess I get to take a nap because there's nothing for me here. Not so fast. Don't check out on me. Because do you aspire to be married one day? Do you aspire to have children one day? If so, you're not going to become the husband, wife, parent that Jesus is calling you to be just on accident on your wedding day. You have to be cultivating these things here and now to be prepared for the life that God is calling you to in the future. And in the meantime, and maybe even if you would say, I I don't know that I aspire to be married. I'm content to be single and that's the calling God has on my life. There is still application for you here today because Do you know anybody who's married? Do you know anybody who has kids? You have the opportunity to encourage, exhort, and maybe even rebuke your friends who fit into those categories to encourage them in godliness. You have a role to play in strengthening the families of the people that you know. So let's focus in. Let's hear these clear commands that we're going to get through the Apostle Paul this morning, and let's 
meditate on what these things are calling us to and how we can apply them to our lives and the lives of the people that we love. So let's read together Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. The text says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. That's God's word. It's a short little piece today, but it's got a lot of impact that we need to take and we need to apply to our lives. So let's pray and continue on in looking at this text this morning. Our God and our perfect Father, what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, and what we are not in our homes and families, make us by the transforming power of your amazing grace, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so for our text today, we have four short, simple commands. I joked with a couple of you throughout the week, this might be the easiest sermon outline I've ever written in my life. You sit down, we've got four verses, we've got four simple commands, I guess I've got four points. So we've got four commands. They're simple, they're straightforward, and they don't require us to do a ton of investigation to figure out what they mean and what we're supposed to do. A lot of this is going to be very basic to understand. It's going to be very difficult, though, to put into practice. And especially this first point demands our careful attention, not because it's difficult to understand or figure out, but because it is so contrary to our current cultural sensibilities that it comes preloaded with misunderstanding, faulty assumptions about what it means, and maybe even downright offense and rejection. This command that Paul gives to wives to submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord is something that to our culture sounds backwards. It sounds counterintuitive. I thought, I thought men and women were equal, and God says that in, in Christ there is no male and female, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. So how are we to, to understand and apply this text? What does it mean for wives to submit to their husbands? So this morning, I'm going to try to, to address three questions. What, why, and how to help us understand this. What is God calling wives to do? Why is he calling them to do it? And how does that practically look in your everyday life? And maybe you're a, a wife here who understands this text, who believes it, who clings to it, and you're trying to apply it faithfully in your life. Maybe you're a woman here who's not heard this before and, and frankly can't believe that it's in the Bible. I want to explain this in a way that's helpful to everybody to help us understand what is God expecting here and why is this a beautiful and glorious command that he gives to wives and to husbands in the covenant of marriage. So, what, why, and how? Well, first up, what does Paul instruct wives to do? He, the instruction is simple. Submit to your husbands. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's what the text says. It's very simple. It's very clear. The term in Greek that we translate as submit uh, means to submit oneself unto, to be subject to, and to obey. And it comes up a lot in the context of the Bible and the attitude that we are supposed to have in the church with submitting to God, submitting to Christ, following him. And we're going to see in just a moment that there's a lot of meaning. That's no accident that we share these, the, uh, that word among those commands because there's something of cosmic and heavenly significance that's going on in these instructions. So a couple, of instru or a couple of points that we need to point out right here off the bat. Number one, it's important to point out that this instruction is being given in the context of marriage, right? The text doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your husbands. Now, that's not to say that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about the way the sexes should relate to one another in general, but it is to say that this text is speaking about marriage. It's very focused on that marriage covenant, on that marriage relationship, so... It's not a statement on the broader culture in which we live. It's talking about what should your marriage look like. So implications, guys, you know, your girlfriend does not have to submit to you. She is not under your covenant leadership. This is talking about marriage and that we need to apply it in the, in the sphere in which it's given. So what it says is, wives, submit to your husbands. The what is easy to comprehend. It might be countercultural, it might be difficult to hear, it might be surprising, but what it's saying is not rocket science. Wives, submit to your husbands. 
But again, for us to rightly understand and apply this, we've got to ask those other two questions. We've got to ask why, and we've got to ask how. So why should wives submit to their husbands? Well, the short answer is right here in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul's argument here is that for a woman who is in Christ, so what does it mean to be in Christ? It means to find your identity in Christ, to take your direction from Jesus. For a woman who is in Christ, submitting to her husband makes sense. It's fitting. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Well, why does it make sense? For us today, 2,000 years down the road, why does it make sense for a woman who is in Christ to submit to her husband? To To answer that, we need to examine in more detail the marriage relationship and what God designed it to be and how he designed it to look. And a great place for us to start that exploration is in Ephesians chapter 5. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, you're going to find that Paul gives parallel instruction to this passage. He's writing here to the Colossians. In Ephesians, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he actually gives them these same four commands. But in Ephesians, he takes a little bit more time. For what reason? We don't know. But in Ephesians, he goes into more detail. Whereas here, it's all wrapped up in four verses. In Ephesians, he takes a lot more to explain the why and the how. And so for us to understand this text, it can be helpful for us to jump over to Ephesians and see how Paul describes in more detail things over there. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24 is where we find the parallel command for verse 18 here. And there he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So there Paul gives the reasoning behind this command that a husband is the head of the wife, just as Jesus is the head of his church. One truth to understand before we go any farther is this. Your marriage is about more than just you. And it's about more than just you and your spouse. Paul is pointing out here that marriage is proclaiming something about who Jesus is and about how he relates to his church. And so by implication, when people watch you and your spouse interact, when they see the way that you love and care for and relate to one another, they should learn something about how Jesus loves his church. They don't even know that off the bat, but once they start to understand who Christ is and who his church is, they should be able to look back at what they've seen in you and in your marriage and say, I see that. I I, I see where, where you love your wife like Christ loves his church. I see where you submit and follow the servant leadership of your husband like the church does to Jesus. It's a picture. It's an illustration. And so understand as we come to this that we're talking about something of cosmic significance. Your marriage is more important than just you and your spouse. You are proclaiming something silently but beautifully and gloriously. Marriage was designed by God, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, as a profound mystery. He says, this is a profound mystery, and I'm referring to the, the picture of Christ and his church. God has written his story into the fabric of the universe in such a way that he drops hints and pictures all throughout his word to the reality, the pinnacle of his work, the sending of Jesus to save us from our sins. So understand, your marriage is about more than just you. And just as Jesus leads his church, Husbands are to lead their wives. Now, more on what that entails in just a little bit. Husbands, we're coming for you here in just a minute. But for now, let's just start with that simple truth is that Paul is saying, God is saying to us that just as Jesus leads his church, husbands are to be leaders in their homes. They're to lead their wives. And because of that, wives are to submit to the leadership of their husbands, as our text says, they're in everything. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul ties this reality even further back to creation itself, showing that the order and the details of creation point to this truth. Remember, Adam is created first, Eve is created out of him and from him and after him. And so Paul is saying, look, this isn't just some off-the-top-of-his-head command that he's giving here. This is rooted in the way God has created husbands and wives to relate to each other, and it's for the purpose of showcasing the glory of Jesus. So two truths here right off the bat. The submission wives are called to is illustrative in its purpose. It paints a picture. It's showcasing a greater reality. 
And it's comprehensive in its scope, in terms of the marriage relationship. In everything is what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, some who object to this command, really, there's only about two ways that you can object to this. Um, The first one is to just say, I don't like it, and reject what God's word is saying here. Because like we said, it's clear, it's not that ambiguous in what it is that Paul is instructing. But the more common way that people in the church would reject this teaching is some would say that it's no longer applicable to us today because it's specifically cultural in its aim. That it's a a command that was given to those people at that time and it really doesn't apply to us anymore. In other words, they would say that, that Paul gave this command to a culture where women were treated as less than men and what he's essentially telling them is to bear with that with patience and to accept it and to showcase Christ in the midst of it but now the, the aim is full equality with men and women, and we have that now in our society. So because we now have that, we don't need this command anymore. It was a temporary thing. But when we look at this verse, when we look at this text, when we look at this explanation, I mean, it cuts the legs right under that argumentation. Because Paul doesn't give us a reason that's cultural in his command. He tells us why he's saying this. It's not a cultural reality, it's a cosmic reality. He's saying this is not about just you and your husband, you and your wife. This is about Jesus and his glory and his church and showing who he is and how he has commanded us to, to reflect him to a watching world. It's grounded in redemption. It's grounded in creation. This is something that God is proclaiming. It's of much more than just temporary cultural significance. The very next question, or the very next command we're going to see to husbands, for husbands to love their wives, nobody makes the argument that that was cultural in its, and merely cultural in its aim. So why would we think that one command is and the other one isn't? So if we see the why here, we see why it is that God is calling this. Why are wives called to submit to their husbands? Because God created marriage to be a relationship where husbands exercise servant leadership, and their wives follow that leadership with an attitude of submission, mirroring the ultimate marriage between the bridegroom, Jesus, and his bride, a people being constructed by grace through faith from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's why marriage exists at its highest, and that's why wives are called to submit to their husbands. But how does this happen? Nuts and bolts, what's it actually practically supposed to look like? Because this concept is so foreign to our culture that it's much easier to conjure up images of awful abuses and caricatures than it is to think about, well, what is the genuine article actually supposed to look like? What I want to do is I want to point out two ways that we can go the wrong way in applying this text. Two ways that we can end up in a ditch, right? If you're walking down a road, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. We don't want to avoid one and fall in the other. So two ways that we can get sideways, I want to point those out, clear up the accompanying misconceptions, and then once we do that, we're going to do some practical application of what does this look like in the marriage, in the home. So the first way we can butcher the command is we can think it means that a husband is to lead his wife in a way that's, pick your adjective, superior, condescending, selfish, harsh, tyrannical, cold, domineering, etc. So we think that, is God just saying that a husband is supposed to sit back on the couch, call the shots, and the wife is just supposed to do whatever he wants her to do? This is the woman make me a sandwich interpretation of this passage. And that's not what he's saying here. And it should be very, very easy to realize that's not what he's saying here when we look at the way that God calls husbands to love their wives. But there's a second way to miss the boat here, too. The second way, the ditch on the other side of the road, is to say, we, yeah, we believe in this, but we, we almost kind of apologize for this text. Well, that's, it's what it says, but it's not really that big of a deal. Yeah, husbands are to lead their wives, but it's, it's kind of like the Queen of England. She leads England, but she doesn't, doesn't really do anything. She's just kind of a, a figurehead, and it's ceremonial. And so, you know, maybe the husband breaks the tie every now and then if you guys can't agree on something, but that, that's really all it is. Either side, if, we, if our conception of this command fits into either of those categories, we're going to go off the rails. And likely, if your concept of that, of this command, fits into one of those categories, then you probably have some repenting to do to God and to your spouse. So the first error, the error that, that says, well, look, a husband just calls the shots and, and that's it, and the wife gets in line and, and, and does whatever she has to do, that is 
precluded by the instruction that Paul gives to husbands about their responsibility in leadership. What does it mean for a husband to lead his wife? Again, we're getting to husbands. I don't want to jump too far into that right here, but not to steal the thunder, let's just say husbands are to lead like Jesus leads. And if a husband is leading like Jesus leads, then he is not going to be harsh. He's not going to be selfish, condescending, tyrannical, cold, domineering, whatever it is. That's not the way Jesus leads his church. It's not the way the husband is supposed to lead in the house. The, the ideal here that Paul is holding up is that a wife should be submitting to a husband who leads her and loves her like Christ loves his church. That's a pretty cool prospect, and it's one that we should cultivate and go for. And we also have to remember that this is rooted in God's design for the marriage relationship, not in some inequality between men and women. Right? Let's, let's turn back and look at creation. Let's look at redemption where we said this truth was rooted. In creation, men and women are both created in the image of God. Men are not more in the image of God than women are. In redemption, the scriptures say that in Christ there is no male or female. Brothers and sisters, you are perfectly equal in personhood. You are perfectly equal in worth. You are perfectly equal in value and in your being created in the image of God. Women are not in any respect whatsoever second-class citizens. That's not what this text is teaching here. And frankly, men, if we think, talk, or act like we believe that's true, even in a small bit, then we are guilty of tearing down sisters who are made in the image of God, and thus we're insulting God. And I think we can be far too flippant with that. We need to treasure our wives. We need to treasure the women around us in a way that says to the, washing, to the watching world that, that that caricature of what marriage looks like, it's foolishness. It doesn't fit. We need to cut the legs out from under that, and that starts with the way that we speak and think and act. But, like we said, there is something that's being commanded here. This is a, a command of significance, and it's, it's stark. Equality of worth does not eliminate difference in role. Let me say that again. Equality in worth, the fact that men and women are equally created in the image of God, does not eliminate differences in roles and responsibilities. And we all understand that perfectly well. For instance, I work a job at UPS during the week. And when I'm at work, I submit to the leadership of my boss. Now, we're perfectly equal as people. She and I are both created in the image of God. We're both valued as as individuals, as citizens. She's not more of a person than I am. But because of the way our company is set up and structured, for the maximum effectiveness of our department, she leads, and those of me and my coworkers who are underneath her submit to her leadership. We take our direction. She sets the tone. She sets the tempo. It's not that we don't have any ideas that we bring to the table. It's not that we're just silent and take our marching orders, but she sets the agenda. She drives the direction of who we are as a department. We're perfectly equal in worth, but we have different roles and responsibilities in terms of our structure to do what we're trying to set out to do, which is to be a good department and and publish manuals that cause planes to not fall out of the sky. And the same thing is true in marriage. You are perfectly equal in, in worth, in your stature before God, but God has created the marriage relationship to be husbands lead your wives like Christ leads his church. Wives submit to your husbands. It doesn't mean that wives have no ideas that they're bringing the table. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to have no personality and just be the shell that walks around and does whatever your husband says, but it does mean that husbands are called to set the tone, to set the tempo in the household, to be the spiritual thermometer that, that, that drives the house in a certain direction, and wives are to submit to the leadership of their husbands in that way. So let's start to ask the questions in terms of application. Wise, if you would say, yes, I believe this truth, I'm embracing it, I'm trying to follow it. I understand that my husband's responsibility and role before God is to lead our household, to set the spiritual agenda, and to to shape and give guidance and direction as we move forward and, and walk through this life. If that's true, if you believe that, are you easy to lead? Right, let, let's throw it back to my office. I understand that my boss sets the direction, and I follow orders. And there have been times when I push back against something my boss says because I think it's a bad idea, and I think it's going to take us down a, a wrong road. 
And so that's perfectly fine for me to raise those concerns to say, hey, have you thought about it this way? Maybe we need to do this. And there have been times when she has changed her mind because of something I brought to the table and said, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's go with things that way. But there does come a point at which I voice my opinion, I make my case, and she says, no, I still think we need to do this. And at that point, it's time for me to get behind the direction that we're taking as a team and go with it. There is a point at which my continued insistence, that's a terrible idea, I don't like it, I think it's stupid, is wrong on my part. And there are times when I, I don't really know where that line is, and I might have gone a little bit too far in front of it, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that my submission to her as my boss, as our group leader, means there's a point where I take my ideas and I submit to the direction that has been established. And I should be easy to lead in that instance. I shouldn't be one who's grumbling and complaining and kicking and screaming. Wives, are you like that at home? If you know your husband will answer to God for how he leads your home, do you make that job a burden for him or a joy? That's what Paul is getting at here when he says, wives, submit to your husband. So if you say that you submit to your husband's leadership, what's the last specific concrete decision you made as a direct implication of that belief? When's the last time that you can say, because this is true, I chose to do this instead of doing that? What practical effect is it having in your home? And if your husband is setting the tone for your house spiritually, are you making that easy to do? Or are you clawing against it and tearing him down and, and kicking against it at every opportunity? Again, there are going to be times where you say, hey, honey, I, I think this is kind of a stupid thing that you're doing here. We might need to change direction a little bit. But there comes a point at which your task given to you by God is to submit, is to follow, and is to make it a joy for your husband to lead your household in that way. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. If you want to be a wife who is like Jesus, who is under the authority of Jesus, then you should make it very easy for your husband to lead you in the same way that Jesus leads. All right, husbands, your turn. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So command number two is given to husbands, namely to love their wives and not be harsh with them. Now, at first glance, this kind of seems like a no-brainer, right? Like, this is husband 101, love your wives. And maybe some of you wives out there are thinking, what? That's it? Like, I've got to put aside my wants and desires and submit to my husband, and his big command is, love your wife? Like, come on, what's, what's the scale look like here? But this, there's more here than meets the eye. There's more here than we would assume. And it's important to note just how countercultural a command this was in the ancient world. If we go back to the world that the Colossians were living in, to the Greco-Roman culture, this was groundbreaking. This was, was revolutionary. In a very real sense, the wives in that culture were treated like property. They belonged to their husbands in a very real sense. In Greco-Roman marriage, all of the rights belonged to men and all of the responsibilities belonged to women. That's a pretty good way to summarize what the culture was like at the time. So for instance, wives were expected to be chaste and to be faithful to their husbands, but husbands were able to be involved in whatever affairs they wished and they would suffer usually no loss of standing in society. It was an absolute and, and vibrant and, and clear double standard that was at play. A husband could divorce his wife for basically any reason whatsoever. If he didn't like the sandwich, he could decide, look, honey, we're done, I'm out. And wives really had no ability to instigate a divorce for any reason. So this is a world where the command, husbands love your wives, this, this isn't just a suggestion, this is a command by God. Your job as a husband is to love and care for your wife. That wasn't assumed in this culture. And Paul is saying, we need to reimagine what that marriage is supposed to look like, what that family is supposed to be. So there's a couple implications that are worth our attention here. As Paul says, husbands, love your wives. The first implication is that husbands shouldn't be harsh with their wives. That's what he says here in verse 19. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Now, the literal translation of the word that we have here translated uh, do not be harsh in the Greek is do not make bitter. In other words, husbands, don't exasperate your wives and cause them to become bitter with you. Right? Often it's easy to think that leadership in the home just consists of calling the shots, right? If the husband says, we're going to do this. Okay, we're going to do this. When we lead selfishly, without care to the thoughts or feelings of our wives, we give them cause for bitterness. Frankly, we make it easier for them to sin, right? If someone becomes bitter and holds on to bitterness and to resentment and to grudges, the Bible calls that sin. And so what we're being called to here as husbands is, husbands, don't give your wives a reason to become bitter and resentful because woe to you if you cause her to sin. Let me remind us of something Jesus said in Luke 17. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Right, translation here. Husbands. If you are causing, by the way that you act and lead in the home, your wife to become bitter and angry and frustrated through your poor leadership, through your selfish leadership, it would be better for you if I tied a giant rock around your neck and tossed you in the pond down at the bottom of the hill here. That's the stark imagery. Is God is saying, that is preferable for the judgment that you bring on yourself when you drag someone else into sin. Are we sober yet? Are we serious yet? Do we see what it is that Paul is saying? Do not be harsh with your wives. Do not give them cause for bitterness. So the call for husbands is to love and to lead with gentleness and with humility. But to say that it's about gentleness and humility, honestly, that's just scratching the surface of what the command is here. Let's go to that parallel passage in Ephesians 5 and see what Paul has to say to husbands over here as he gets into more detail. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 28, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. All right, summary. Husbands, you ready? We are to love our wives like Jesus loved the church by his sacrificial death for her and loves her still by his sanctifying work in her life. We are to love our wives like Jesus loved the church, giving himself up for her. Husbands, would you die for your wife? That's a sobering question. And it probably conjures up images of these horrible hypothetical situations that we would think of. Would you die for your wife? And all of us to a man would say, sure, yeah, absolutely. But let's ask it in a different way. Did you die for your wife yesterday? I mean, like, well, what are you talking about? I didn't have the occasion to die for my wife yesterday. Yes, you did. All day long. Did you die to your desires? Did you die for your wants? Did you die for your rights and love your wife sacrificially, giving yourself up for her in the mundane day to day, in the 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 plans that you had, in the leisure that you had, in the chores that you had? Did you die for your wife yesterday? Did you die to self? Do you regularly put your own wants and desires to death in order to love and serve your wife? That's what Jesus did for us, right? Though being in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in the likeness of men, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what loving your wife like Jesus looks like. Did you do that yesterday? Did you do that this morning? How can you do that this afternoon? 
But that's just the first part. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But he didn't stop there. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Are you sanctifying your wife? I mean, of course, your wife is going to answer to God herself for the decisions that she makes, for the way that she follows after Jesus. But you are responsible for presenting her before her true groom without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Husbands, you will answer to God for your wife's godliness, for your wife's holiness. That should slap us across the face. And so ask yourself, in your leadership in the home, are you creating a climate and a culture where her spiritual life can flourish? Are you washing her with the word? Does she hear God's word from your mouth directed at her, encouraging, building up, rebuking when necessary? Because that's your calling. That's my calling. That's our responsibility as husbands, to love and to lead like Jesus, dying to self, putting my wants and desires aside in order to love and lead her and washing her with the word so that I might, on the day that we both stand before God, be able to say, here she is, without spot, blemish, to the best of my ability, Father, I present her to you. Are you a pastor, a shepherd in your home, in the life of your wife? Is she more like Jesus because of you or in spite of you? It's easy to see that a wife submitting to her husband is a big and weighty thing. She's got to put her own desires aside. She's got to put her own will and attitude aside and follow after her husband. But don't fall into the trap for a second of thinking that the husband's call to love his wife is cheap. It is grand, it is glorious, and it will cost you your life. Daily, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and do not be harsh with them. For the second set of commands, verse 20, Paul shifts his focus from husbands' wives to parents and kids. And so the first command is this, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So for this point, Paul starts talking to kids. We've got some kids in here this morning. This part of the sermon is just for you, absolutely just and totally for you. So what God calls you to do in his word is he says, obey your parents. Do you know what that means? It means obey your parents. <laughs> and all the, kid, all the parents in the audience are going, yes, come on, preach it, preacher. Kids are to obey their parents as pleases the Lord. So two questions I want us to answer for us this morning, okay? Is how often should you obey and why should you obey? All right, well, the first one, how often, comes right here in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. Do you know what everything means? It means everything. It means obey your parents when they're watching and they'll know if your room was cleaned or not. And it means obey your parents when they'll never know if you obeyed. They might tell you to do something and you could not do it and get away with it. God says obey them even then. Obey them in everything. It means obey with your heart, not just with your actions. There's a story that's told about this little boy, and he was in class in school, and he was kind of doing stuff he wasn't supposed to do, and he got in trouble, and his teacher called him out, and she says, Hey, Johnny, go and sit in the corner and think about what you did. And so Johnny goes over, and he sits in the corner, and he looks up at his teacher, and he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. We don't want to be like that. God cares about how you obey on the inside even more than he cares about how you obey on the outside. He wants you to obey with your attitude, not just your action. So when your mom and dad tell you to do something, it shouldn't be just, okay, there, I did it. You happy now? No, it should be with happiness and with joy. Because it pleases God. You ever think about that? Why should you obey your parents? Because it pleases God. I want you to think about something that someone did this week that made you happy. 
Can you think of something? Could have been at school, could have been at home. I want you to think about something that somebody else did that made you happy. What the Bible says here is that when you obey your parents, it makes God happy like that. That's pretty cool, huh? Do you know you can make God happy by the way that you live? If we love God and we want him to be happy, then our obedience to our parents makes God pleased. It makes him happy. In Ephesians 6, where we see the other passage where Paul goes into more detail, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Excuse me. So obeying your parents doesn't just make God happy. It's also good for you. That's what that passage says. Do you know God doesn't just tell us things to do because he's grumpy and he likes to make rules? God tells us things to do because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And because he made us, he always knows what's best for us. A little bit ago, Pastor Dave read our sermon re- or our scripture reading for this morning. He read from Proverbs chapter 1. I want you to listen to this verse in verses 8 and 9 in Proverbs 1. God says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. That sounds kind of weird. What's he talking about there? He says, listen to your mom and dad because they're like a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. You know what a garland and a pendant is? These were prizes in the Olympics or in contests. A garland was like this crown of leaves that the winner of a race would get. And a pendant is a gold medal that someone would wear around their neck. And so what God's saying there is that when you obey your parents, it's like a gold medal at the Olympics. Your obedience to your mom and dad is a prize. It's a treasure. It's something that's good. If you won a gold medal at the Olympics, do you think you'd put it on and you'd be like, this is my gold medal. I don't really like it, but I guess I'll keep it. No, if you had a gold medal at the Olympics, you'd be like, look at this. This is the coolest thing ever. I got a gold medal. It is. And God says that when you obey your parents, It's one of the best things in the world. It should fill you with joy and happiness. It's a treasure for you. So obey your parents in everything because this pleases God and it's like a prize for you. It's a treasure in your life. Now, there'll be times when you mess up. There'll be times when you disobey. When that happens, don't don't hide it. Don't run further away to God, but repent and run back to him. And say, I'm sorry, God, for messing up. Help me to do better. Tell your parents, I'm sorry for messing up. I I want to to become more obedient and follow in the way that you tell me to better day after day after day. God is always ready to forgive. Always. Every time. And your parents should be too. Now, that doesn't mean there'll be no consequences. Because God disciplines us to help us to become more like him. And your parents should be doing the same thing. But it does mean that God will never leave us. And he will never send us away. He'll never forsake us. He'll never stop loving you no matter what. And so will your parents. They'll always love you. So, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. All right. Got it? Good. All right, parents. Now it's time to turn the rifle at us. Parents. Don't provoke your kids. Fathers, verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Parents, don't provoke your kids. Now, this text is specifically addressed to fathers as the leaders and the tone setters in the home. Remember, leadership isn't just calling the shots, but it's setting the tempo, setting the tone that the house is going to run by. And so the the command is addressed primarily to dads. But this is applicable to moms and dads. So it says, fathers, don't provoke your children. Fathers and mothers. This, this gets everybody. This is for all of us. And the text says, do not provoke your kids. Now, the word here for provoke means to stir up. It appears one other place in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians. So, fathers, do not provoke. Do not stir up your children lest they become discouraged. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians 9. Listen to how Paul uses it here. He says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know of your readiness. 
of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So the idea in that text, Paul's talking to one church about their generosity, and he says, look, your generosity has stirred the Macedonians onto action. Because of your generosity, they took action and they did the same thing. You stirred them up. You caused them to behave, to act, to do in a certain way. And so in the same way here, Paul is saying, parents, do not stir up your kids so that they become discouraged. Do not cause them by your parenting to be driven to anger, to frustration, or continued disobedience. Parents shouldn't, by their actions, stir up their kids to anger, frustration, or continued disobedience. And this is remarkably similar to the command that God gave husbands not to be harsh, not to embitter their wives. Is your parenting characterized by beating your kids down? And I'm not talking about physically here. We should clear that out right out of the way. But is your parenting characterized by beating your kids down or by lifting them up to see the glory and the beauty of the God you serve and the commands that he gives us? In our Ephesians parallel, Ephesians 6, not only does Paul say, don't provoke your kids, but he also gives a positive example too. He tells us not just what not to do, but he also tells us what to do. So let's look at Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, check, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So he's making a contrast. Instead of stirring up anger in our kids with harsh attitudes, We should be trying to cultivate godliness in them. And that does not happen with mere words. I want you to listen to this quote from pastor and author Doug Wilson talking about this truth. He says, Our parental responsibility does not consist in getting young people to grit their teeth and conform to the standard. The task before us is to bring up our children in such a way as to love the standard. This is not possible to do with externally driven rules. It is a function of loyalty. And loyalty is based on love and relationship. Where does love come from? Well, as always, God models it for us. What he asks us to do, he shows us how to do. And we love him because he loved us first. If we want our young people to love us, with grace around the neck like an Olympic medal, then we must show them how to wear it. The next time you tell your kids to do something, ask yourself, when was the last time you showed them what obedience to that command looks like? If your kids mimic your attitude in obeying your rules, how's that going to go? Again, like we talked about with wives and husbands, our kids are going to answer to God for whether they obey, for whether they disobey, for the attitudes of their heart, for the actions, for the words of their mouth. But we will also answer to God for the way that we cultivated godliness in them. Did we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, cultivating godliness through hard work, through sacrificial love, through action? Or did we just load command after command on them and cause them to become angry and frustrated by the weight of it all. Parents, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That's a dump truck worth of weighty instruction. Like I started this week and you think, I mean, Family's easy, right? You, you wives, husbands, love each other, love your kids. You can do this in our sleep, right? But when we are confronted with the weight of this by God's word, it changes everything. It's got to transform our thinking. It's got to transform our attitudes, our emotions, our actions. We have to reimagine what our families are supposed to look like. Not just today, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. This is a daily get up, die to self all over again kind of command. 
So what do we do with this? Where do we take this? We've talked about a lot of application already. But husbands, wives, parents, kids, is this what your home life looks like? Whew. That's a hard question, right? I mean, all of us are going to feel some weakness. All of us are going to feel some weight. All of us are probably going to feel the pain of failures that we've had in the past. Maybe failures yesterday, maybe failures this morning. But is this what your home life looks like? And I want you to ask it this way. Are these traits present and growing in you? That's the way to do application when we want to look at our sanctification. Because we see this all the time in Scripture. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things that God's Spirit promises to bring about in us when he transforms our hearts. And we ask, do I see those in my life? And it's easy to say, well, I don't see them as much as I should. I know that. But are they present? Are they there at all, number one? And if they are, are they growing? Are you better at it now than you were five years ago? Are you better at it today than you were last week? God, when he works in our hearts, he doesn't just flip a switch and we're magically transformed and we're perfect. But when he works in our hearts, he plants the seeds that will grow into the tree of the person that he is creating us to be. And so that that presence, those attitudes, those actions should be present in you to some respect and they should be growing. And if they're not present at all, then ask the question, have you been transformed by the gospel that produces these attitudes and actions? Remember, it's, it's very easy as we get into the nitty-gritty instruction of Colossians 3 and 4 to divorce it from the glorious truths of Colossians 1 and 2. But there's a reason this comes after that. This stuff doesn't happen on its own. You're not going to just stumble into being this kind of wife, this kind of husband, this kind of parent, this kind of kid. You're only going to get there by the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By realizing that your perfect father came down and emptied himself and died for you submitting his will, his glory, his desires in order to redeem you from your mess, your filth, your sin. And he rose triumphantly from the grave putting to death sin and and putting to death your failures, your shortcomings. And now he has the power to triumph over them, not just in his death and resurrection, but in your heart. And he gives you a new heart and he cultivates a heart in you that is alive and that is vibrant and that is being filled by his spirit. That's how you become this kind of husband. That's how you become this kind of wife. That's how you become this kind of parent. That's how you become this kind of kid. And maybe you're sitting here and thinking, but I'm so far down the road. I've screwed this up for so long. What's the point anymore? There's always the point. There's always hope. God can transform you and change you in this moment, and and he can do a work in you that makes you grow in a way that you're never the same again. And you think, but what about the last 20 years that I messed up, that I screwed up? God's not concerned about the last 20 years. He's concerned about the next 20 years. And you can't go back and change what you did, but you can change what the future looks like in your family and in the family of people who know you. Again, this is bigger than you. It's bigger than you and your spouse. It's bigger than you and your family. This is about Christ and his church and his glory. And there is no more foundational way that we will proclaim to a watching world just how amazing Christ's grace is than by letting them see our homes, our families, our closest, most intimate relationships as foundationally different than anything that they've seen. Our culture doesn't have a clue what marriage is supposed to look like. Our culture sees marriage as a, as a relationship of convenience, as a relationship of passion. You fall in love, you can fall out of love, here today, gone tomorrow. That's not the way Jesus deals with his bride, and it's not the way Christians deal with theirs. We need to show in our parenting. We don't just dump our kids in the corner and hope that they make A's and turn out okay. But we love them. We cultivate godliness in them just as God our father is not distant he's not harsh but he comes down he gets down on his knees in the dirt with us and he builds us up and molds us and shapes us into something and someone who is being transformed from spiritual death to spiritual life maybe you're here this morning and you're not a husband yet you're not a wife yet you're not a parent 
Are you preparing yourself for obedience to these commands in the future if God gives you the opportunity? If you're thinking, I want to be married, I want to be a husband, I want to be a wife, are you practicing these virtues in your life now? Are you practicing dying to self when you have the opportunity? Saying no, exercising self-control. Are you practicing building a heart that loves Christ as your first love and takes your cues on what love looks like from him? Right? If, if you like sports, our favorite sports teams don't just show up the first day of the season and start playing. Right? There's training camp. There's practice. There's scrimmages. In the same way, don't wait till you get married. Don't wait till you have a kid to start cultivating these realities in your life. And right here, right now, whether you want to be married someday, whether you want to have kids someday, or whether you say, I'm content to be single to the glory of God for the rest of my life. Are you encouraging and helping your married and your parent friends in their obedience to this command? You have something to offer. Do you ever think about that? It's very easy to think, well, how can I tell them how to be a wife or a husband? Or how can I tell them how to be a parent? I've I've never done those things before. What do I know? I want you to remember, as far as we know, Paul was not married. He certainly isn't married as he's writing this. As far as we know, Paul didn't have kids. And yet he writes these words to husbands and wives and parents and kids. It's very easy. Let's talk to those of us who are married, who are parents. When somebody who's not married, somebody who's not a parent speaks into your life and says, have you thought about this? Have you looked at this? It's very easy to jump back with a, what, what do you know? You haven't been through it. You haven't lived through it. That is something we need to watch very, very carefully. Because we can hear friends that don't have kids, friends who aren't married, speaking into our lives under the authority of God's word. And we need to receive it. And not just hold them at arm's length because we know better because we've been there, done that. Now, those of you who aren't married, who don't have kids, be, be humble in your help. But don't assume you have nothing to offer. Paul didn't. Remember Tom's sermon from last week. The Swiss Army knife, thousand blades. Whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Showcase his greatness in all things. That's the big picture blanket that's covering all of this. And so when you go home today, And when you think about what kind of wife am I, what kind of husband am I, what kind of parent am I, what kind of kid am I, put these things into practice. But remember, it all is under the umbrella of the glory of God. And it's all under the ability of the Spirit of God working in you. And so in a minute, we're going to take communion. And it's very easy after a sermon, after a text this weighty to think, you know, what hope do I have? Come to Christ, come to the table, come messed up, come weak, come frail, and find grace. And not just grace for the failures of the past, but grace that transforms your future. And rejoice that we are children of a perfect father. We are a bride being prepared for the perfect groom. And we, in some small, minuscule, and imperfect way, by getting up and living life, proclaim his glory. There is no day that you will walk through this week that is mundane and meaningless, if that is your aim. So let's walk together. Let's encourage one another. And let's glorify Jesus in the home. Let's pray. Our God and good Father, our Savior and perfect groom, thank you for your great love for us, the love that creates all other loves. We love because you loved us first. We can submit because you submitted your will for our salvation first. We can lead because you showed us how. We obey because your son showed us how to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we can patiently parent knowing that you have done the same for us all our lives. 
You ask us to do nothing that you haven't demonstrated yourself. What a God. What a Savior, Father. We praise you. We thank you. And we want to give you glory. We want our families, we want our lives to showcase this wonder. Help us. Father, for those of us who have fallen short and feel the weight of those failures, God, may you lavish grace upon grace. May you comfort with your spirit. For those of us who feel the weight of failures, maybe this morning, maybe this week, Father, help us to put to death anything in us that is ungodly, that doesn't belong. Make us more like Christ. Conform us to his likeness by your spirit for your glory. And remind us in all of this that we are who we are by your life and death and resurrection. Father, may our marriages, may our families preach the gospel to a watching world. May they preach the gospel to our own ears, reminding us of your love for us, of your grace, of your forgiveness. And Father, make us into a powerful declaration, broken, weak, frail, But Father, you tell us that your power is perfected in weakness. And Father, may we boast in our weakness if it showcases your glory and your power all the more. God, change us, encourage us, break us down, build us back up again. And may our families sing your praise day after day. We thank you in Christ's name and ask these things for his sake, the sake of his kingdom, the sake of his church. Amen.